Hi, I'm Mark Lynch, Director of the Project on Middle East Political Science. Welcome back to the POMAPS Middle East Book Podcast. Uh, joining us today is Aaron Zellin, author of the new book, uh, Your Sons Are at Your Service, Tunisia's Missionaries of Jihad, which was just published by Columbia University Press. Uh, Aaron, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So tell us a little bit uh, about the book. Uh, what inspired you to write it, and uh, what do you think the major contributions of the book are going to be? So for me, uh, as background, I have been following the jihadi movement for over a decade now. Um, and, you know, in the aftermath of the Arab uprisings, you started to see a flurry of new organizations and groups coming about. And in particular, um, when I saw this posting on the forums, uh, which is what they were using at the time for propaganda instead of social media, uh, there was a notice about this event for this new group called Ansar al-Sharia in Tunisia, um, in, in downtown Tunis. And I was kind of surprised just because, you know, historically, usually haven't heard about too many Tunisians involved in the jihadi movement. Um, usually people from like Saudi Arabia or Yemen or Egypt and elsewhere. Um, and also the fact that, you know, many people always viewed Tunisia in some ways more secular or cosmopolitan. Um, and even their, you know, Islamist movement, Nahda, is uh, more uh, open than, say, you know, the Egyptian Muslim Brotherhood. Uh, so for me, it was kind of surprising in the fact that this was only, you know, in May 2011, um, so about a few months after the revolution happened and the overthrow of Ben Ali. Um, so from there, it kind of just brought me down this rabbit hole, and I, I really wanted to just understand it and what was going on. And over time, the group started to grow and become more relevant, and more people were attracted to joining it. Um, you know, at the time, I didn't think, it would be like super big of a deal. But then years later, when people started to go to Syria to join up with Jabhat al-Nusra, and then later with, uh, you know, the Islamic State, everybody's like, why are there so many Tunisians in ISIS? Um, so, uh, you know, I had the opportunity to then uh, focus on this more deeply as part of a PhD project at King's College London. Um, and for me, you know, the most exciting part of this research was actually looking at what was going on before 2011. I think people generally have somewhat of an idea of what's happened over the last almost a decade now. Um, but a, a lot uh, of things that happened prior to that, I think, helps explain where we got to post-2011, um, even though most people didn't even realize Tunisians were actually involved, uh, you know, in the anti-Soviet jihad in Afghanistan or were heavily involved in some of the recruitment and fighting in Bosnia um, and even helping uh, conduct stuff in Algeria as well. The book is full of fascinating details on that and, and how exactly Tunisians got involved. So why don't we kind of start kind of at the beginning then? You know, so the uh, the jihad is beginning in Afghanistan, and who shows up? Uh, you know, as most people know, Abdul Azam obviously was one of the key figures that helped push the mobilization and movement of uh, Arabs to Pakistan and Afghanistan. Um, and at the time, you really only saw a trickle of Tunisians going there. Um, some went because they felt the cause was just uh, against the Soviets. Others, for more, um, you know, uh, geopolitical grievances. There's this interesting story uh, about this guy who was in the Tunisian Air Force, um, who actually, um, you know, through uh, their uh, leader, heard about the fact that when the Israelis bombed the PLO in, in Tunisia, that they told them not to have any alert system up and they shouldn't do anything, and that this sort of radicalized them in some ways um, to more of this cause, and hmm. he ended up in Afghanistan. Um, and then you also had some people going over there more for uh, humanitarian reasons, like others, um, and, 
and some didn't even end up fighting. Uh, they just uh, helped write some of the magazine articles in uh, Majlat al-Jihad um, and Bunyan al-Marsus um, and others. So, but at that at that point, the Tunisians weren't really like this coherent movement, and it was in like ones and twos and dozens at most. And then when the war ends, some of them go home, some of them go to Europe. You know, where do they go? Yeah, so because, uh, you know, the end of the Afghan-Soviet war was sort of in the context of when Anakta was starting to do well in some elections within Tunisia, and it was also the transition between Bourguiba and Bin Ali, and Bin Ali started to see more of a threat from Anakta um, uh, at the time, you saw, you saw the major crackdown against Anakta, um, um, and because of that, um, these individuals who went to Afghanistan felt that they probably would be swept up in this crackdown and go to jail as well. So a number of individuals um, ended up going to Europe to try and lay low there, as well as potentially get involved in more activities going forward. It's really interesting, the connection between these domestic episodes of repression and the formation of this international network of not just jihadists, but Islamists in general, force out into the diaspora and then forming all of these new organizations and networks. What's distinctive about the Tunisian role in that? Yeah, so the Tunisians, um, like I think most people have have recognized, you didn't really hear about Tunisians involved in, you know, Al-Qaeda or other jihadi organizations prior to what happened in Tunisia following the revolution. Um, and part of that is because they weren't really like senior level figures. Um, they weren't really these uh, important ideologues within the movement. Um, but in fact, uh, they were... Uh, involved more in facilitation, recruitment, um, forgery of documents, as well as more foot soldiers in the movement um, than being these large stars. Of course, over time, as these individuals got to know each other and uh, sort of the Tunisian movement became more coherent, they took on larger roles within the broader movement, depending on which organization you're talking about. And now today with, you know, say the Islamic State, you saw many important Tunisians in, involved in the organization. But you have a nice phrase in there. You call them the middle managers. <laughs> yes, exactly. They pretty much connected everybody to one another. Um, and that in part helps explain some of the reasons why you saw so many um, foreign fighters end up going to Syria more recently because many of them were connected to prior foreign fighter mobilizations, whether it was related to Bosnia mm -hmm. Um, and more directly to the more recent stuff, what was happening with Iraq um, after the U.S. invaded in 2003. And because these guys, these Tunisians, were so heavily focused on logistics and, as you said, passports and all that sort of thing, and they knew, they knew everyone. They were facilitators. Exactly. So that's why they're one of the first groups of people to actually get to Syria um, in 2012, when you started to see more of a mobilization um, following, you know, what the Assad regime did against the local Sunni population. Now, one of the things which I find really interesting when you're talking about that European diaspora is uh, is the role that they played as they started hooking up with uh, with the Algerian uh, jihadists during the Algerian civil war of the 1990s, which is kind of this forgotten but extremely important episode in the evolution of contemporary Islamist and jihadist uh, insurgency. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because, you know, when people talk about ISIS today and how they're super takfiri and they have this really extreme outlook on um, jihad um, in comparison to, say, al-Qaeda, um, a lot of these ideas were percolating in Afghanistan in the late 1980s at, at the end of the war with the Soviets um, as, as a reaction to 
battles uh, lost in Jalalabad uh, by the foreign fighters there. Um, and many of these perpetrators of these ideas were Algerians and they helped sort of seed then what became the GIA in the early 90s uh, when they then started fighting um, against the Algerian military. Um, and because there wasn't any space really for any mobilization or activity within Tunisia in the 90s and the aftermath of Ben Ali's crackdown against Nakhda, uh, many of the Tunisians connected with their fellow North Africans um, from Algeria within the European context, especially um, in Italy in particular, uh, though there were some smaller networks at the time also in London and Brussels um, and Paris um, in helping with, you know, some of the logistics and facilitation as well pro as well as propaganda in relation to helping out with, uh, you know, what they called the Algerian Jihad. And one thing which is interesting about the book is that, you know, a lot of people talk about this stuff in the abstract and uh, but you really dug into the court records and, um, you know, all over Europe, it looks like. Um, and that, that really helps to build out a much more detailed and nuanced understanding of who these people were and what they were doing. Yeah, I wanted to really get in the weeds of it. I know that sometimes maybe it's probably too much for some people, but I, I felt because nobody had written this story before that it was important to really draw it out because then that would really help hammer home the point of why we did see such a large mobilization in the aftermath of the revolution in 2011. Because I felt if I just kind of glossed over it, People would have been like, okay, so what? Um, so through that, I, I was able to get access to court records in you know, Spain and France and Germany, um, stuff from the EU, Belgium, uh, and then also through a deep dive in a bunch of primary sources in Arabic from jihadi magazines that they're publishing in the 80s and 90s, as well as their own biographies. I was able to you know, triangulate a bunch of different information and really map out who these people were, what they were doing, and how this evolved over time, um, where they first started out as you know this scattered group, as um, uh, was described by one jihadi in the 1980s, to this more um, organized entity by the late 1990s in in the lead up to the 9/11 attacks. Yeah, yeah, you had that phrase uh, from uh, Thomas Heghammer, the remote ethnography. Or yeah, along, exactly. Like that. I mean, it, it you know that's what's. Uh, so fascinating in some ways about the jihadi movement is that there's just such a plethora of uh, primary sources. It's, you know, a decade ago, it was sort of manageable, but now it's almost uh, overwhelming. Um, but because of that, you know, and the fact that there are security concerns with meeting individuals in these movements, because many of them are in violent locations, and of course, they might want to kill me or other researchers who are, you know, Western, um, because of their ideological beliefs, uh, this provides a proxy for it in some ways. Though I was able um, uh, to actually meet members of Ansar al-Sharia in Tunisia after the revolution because it was a unique experience between sort of 2011 and 13 when the organization was allowed to openly proselytize, recruit, and do outreach um, in a way that we really have never seen in any other context. Maybe you could say that in, uh, you know, say in, in London with some of the movements there. Um, but this was in, of course, a Muslim-majority country and not, you know, uh, Muslims acting as minorities and dealing with some of all the issues related to that in that context. But one of the things which is interesting is that um, you see this move into the social services provision and the like. They're not the only ones doing it. It's, it's, it you see this adaptation happening with al-Yemen, with al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula in Yemen, and al-Nusra starts doing it in Syria. And so you see it as part, uh, it's local, but it's also part of a broader strategic shift. 
Yeah, I mean, if you if you look at uh, the aftermath of sort of what Zarqawi did in, in Iraq um, in the mid-2000s, uh, you know, obviously Al-Qaeda wasn't happy with the extreme violence and, and the way they acted towards not only the, the Shiites, but also the local Sunni population. Um, and, and so, uh, you know, Al-Qaeda, alongside some other ideologues like Abu Muhammad al-Maqtasi, uh, started really putting out sort of these lessons learned as well as ways forward and how to deal with what was going on. And some of it was coming back to the roots of dealing with the people locally instead of just acting as more of this vanguard um, and becoming more of this broader social movement. Of course, you know, from 2006-7 to 2010-11, they weren't really able to implement it on the ground. A lot of it was just more theoretical and they're talking about it and they're also starting to do these more like Dawa type and educational and religious type of lectures online to their supporters is sort of saying this is the correct way of interpreting and understanding Islam and also treating people in daily life. Um, but then after 2011 with, you know, the opening of the public square in Tunisia, um, as well as, um, you know, civil wars happening in places like Libya or Yemen and uh, Syria and these safe havens that were then created by um, different rebel groups or jihadi groups, um, they're able then to implement some of these lessons learned. And part of this was this social service and, and proto-governance projects. And Ansar al-Sharia was very adept at it in, in many respects. Um, um, and for them, they really had this dawah first approach. Uh, although there was some side violence, which eventually did hurt them and led to their eventual designation as a terrorist organization by the Tunisian government August 2013, they were relatively nonviolent and building up a support base in a way you really hadn't seen because, um, you know, at their second annual conference in May 2012, there were 40,000 people there. So in that 2011 to 2013 period, it really is kind of a unique period. And you spend a lot of time talking uh, about two parts of that, which are interesting. One is the uh, the fact that nobody really knew that they were Al-Qaeda. Um, and the second being that Anahda, the, the Islamist party in government, had to have a, had sort of a delicate dance with uh, al Sharia, like trying to figure out exactly how much rope to give them. And uh, and I think you say they gave them a little too much. Yeah, it's it's a definitely interesting time period. Um, for one, Al Qaeda was as part of this process of dealing with the aftermath of everything that happened um, during Zarqawi's rule in Iraq um, with Al Qaeda in Iraq. Um, uh, they were trying to rebrand themselves because the Al-Qaeda name was really sullied by what Zarqawi did. Um, and if you look at the Abbottabad documents, there are letters within them that bin Laden was writing to other leaders in Al-Qaeda about changing the name. And some of them were really too much of a mouthful. But for whatever reason, they ended up coming up with this Ansar al-Sharia name that then you saw being used by AQAP in Yemen as sort of a front. And then they used the same name with groups in Libya and Egypt as well. Um, and trying to just simplify what we are, because part of it was Al-Qaeda was annoyed that most people didn't say their full name, which was Qaedat al-Jihad, the base of jihad. Um, and so Ansar al-Sharia actually showed what they're trying to do, sort of the supporters of Islamic law and what they're attempting to accomplish. Um, and, you know, the the leader of Ansar al-Sharia, Abu Ayyad al-Tunisi, or Saif Allah bin Hassin, his um, real name, you know, he had been a part of sort of Al-Qaeda's network going all the way back to the early to mid-90s and some of these support networks related to Algeria. But then uh, when the Taliban took over Afghanistan in the late 90s, involved in a lot of the training camps and activities in Afghanistan. Um, uh, so he was tied to bin Laden and Zawahiri at the time. And, that, and so they're essentially 
um, pushing forward some of these strategies that they that Al Qaeda was attempting to put out in the aftermath of uh, the uprisings. In terms of uh, the Nakta component, um, for them, they you know as I alluded to earlier, they were cracked down upon very harshly by the Bin Ali regime in the late '80s and early '90s. Um, and for them, they're like, well, we're now in power. 15 years later, of course, they're part of uh, the Troika and not like in full control of Tunisia. And of course, it was under democracy and not autocracy. Um, but they felt that if they cracked down hard in the same way somebody might do with a usual Al-Qaeda-like group, um, this could then lead to a further radicalization as well as greater violence during this tumultuous transition to democracy. Um, uh, and that it could then lead in 15 years for these guys and individuals that were affiliated with Al-Qaeda to be in control of Tunisia. So they didn't want anything to go along those lines. Um, however, I think they were a bit naive um, in some ways in their own ability to um, uh, uh, get these guys in Ansar al-Sharia to buy into the political system. Of course, since they're jihadists, they don't believe in democracy. They believe it as contributing um, God's sovereignty. But uh, a lot of leaders in Anakta felt that they could co-opt them. Um, and because of that, they provided them the space to do this Dao and outreach and provide social services. Um, but over time, because, you know, inherently uh, this jihadist ideology is somewhat violent, they started getting into sort of Hezbollah-like attacks, essentially vigilantism hmm. against, you know, secular artists because they were portraying things that they deemed as against Islam. Um, they were burning uh, mausoleums because they viewed that as bidda within Islam. Um, and even going after some Anakta members themselves because they felt that they weren't, you know, instituting Sharia um, uh, within Tunisia after the revolution in the process of building the new constitution. Um, so it became a larger issue, but really the turning point was the attack on the U.S. Embassy in, in Tunis in uh, September 2012 um, in, the, in the aftermath of the Innocence of Muslims film, the anti-Muslim film that uh, this individual in the U.S. put out. And you also saw this led to the attack against the U.S. Uh, consulate in Benghazi, which led to um, Ambassador Stevens being killed, um, as well as uh, sort of a riot in front of the U.S. Embassy in Cairo around the same time. So, and that finally led them to crack down. Well, it wasn't like a complete crackdown. You started seeing some changes, but you really only started to see more of a push uh, in early 2013 with the assassination of Shukri Belaid, one of the secular politicians, because you saw a lot of um, people on the left in Tunisia really pushing back on Anakta and being like, you guys really need to do something here. Um, and then the fact that AQIM then inserted themselves within the mountainous regions close to Algeria in late 2012 mm -hmm. to start some insurgent attacks against the Tunisian military, that really changed public opinion as well. Even if AST and AQIM are both on Team Al-Qaeda, they kind of were doing their own sort of uh, s tactics or strategies at the time. Um, so that eventually led to a broader crackdown around May 2013 and eventually the designation August 2013. I'll go back to the, the crackdown thing because one of the things which is interesting and it really resonates with uh, the experience of other countries like Egypt and, and elsewhere is you, you, have, you have a long passage about the role of Tunisia's prisons in the pre-revolutionary period where uh, if, if I... If I remember the argument correctly, it brings together kind of the first generation Afghan veterans with the second generation Iraq veterans, and that then becomes the basis for for the movement. And it seems like prisons often bring together 
the bad guys like that. Yeah, it's um, it's it's an interesting dynamic, and actually hasn't been something that's explored in greater detail within people who study jihadi movement. I mean, there have been some studies here and there, but a broader comparative look would actually be really interesting. But yeah, so uh, in the aftermath of uh, the 9/11 attacks, there are a lot of arrests in Europe. Um, as well as in Tunisia related to individuals that had joined the Afghan Jihad in the 80s or involved in some of the networks in the late 1990s. Um, and, and many of them were then imprisoned within Tunisia. Um, and then you saw then this newer generation of individuals um, who were inspired by what was happening in Iraq with Zarqawi and, and fighting against the U.S. occupation at the time they were arrested in Iraq or they were caught in Syria by the Assad regime or they were caught by the Algerians training with AQIM in Algeria and then all of them being sent back and then you sort of had this mix within prison um, and the Tunisian government at the time didn't really have an idea of what was going on in the prisons and they weren't trying to do any like de-radicalization or even these revision programs that you saw in places like Egypt and Libya and Algeria where a segment of the jihadi movement was sort of reassessing the ideas and ideology and what they're doing. Um, and Abu Ayyad at the time said that this was one of the greatest things about the Tunisian jihadi movement um, is that they were able to really coalesce and network with one another. And they were able to come up with sort of a plan of what they're hoping to do after they got out. Um, and I was lucky enough when I was doing some field research in Tunisia to meet one of the first uh, 20 members who was involved in sort of this process um, uh, which started in around 2006, around the time of the 50th anniversary of Tunisia's independence from France, because they did a prisoner amnesty, which let out a number of Anakta officials, but they themselves, these guys that were uh, going to be leaders in Ansar al-Sharid, are like, well, if they're getting out, I'm sure we will eventually. And that's led to the process. So that also is one of the reasons why you saw such a quick bloom in many respects after 2011, that they're prepared and ready to go. That's really interesting. Um, so... Let me um, ask then kind of like the big question the you know, the one that you said kind of motivated the book early on, which is, you know, why were there so many Tunisians represented in the jihad, the foreign fighters in Iraq and in Syria? Yeah, I mean, part of it has to do, I think, with these historical networks that we've been talking about. So there were already a lot of people involved. It's just that most people didn't realize it because it wasn't actually happening within Tunisia. It was happening in places like Afghanistan, Iraq, and even these networks in Europe. Um, two, because they were in these middlemen, um, they're very connected to various organizations. So it was easy to get involved if you really wanted to. So the head of um, ISIS's um, foreign fighter recruitment was actually a Tunisian. Um, so the Tunisians were connected to that right off the bat, and that went all the way back to activities happening in Iraq in the prior decade. Um, can, can, can I just ask, though, is the argument that there are more people in Tunisia relatively who are sympathetic to jihadism than in other countries, or is it that because you have this facilitation network, uh, more of the ones who are interested are able to get there? Yeah, I, I think the latter is, is more apt in uh, explains it better. But I also think because the country did have this opening after the revolution and the fact that Ansar al-Shri was able to operate and recruit, there was this larger base of potential individuals to then go once the organization was cracked down upon. And then there was the space to potentially go and fight in Syria. Um, so, I mean, for example, if say, you know, Egypt became, you know, this open democracy, 
I'm sure you would see way more Egyptian jihadists just because of the history of Egyptian jihadism um, get involved than in, in comparison to Tunisia. I mean, although the numbers seem large, you know, in general, if you look at the you know comparison of the overall population and then how many got involved, it's still really only less than like 1% of the population. Um, it's just that because there are so many that got involved with through Ansar al-Sharia, um, they're then able to access these networks later on. Um, last question then, you have, you have this nice discussion of how after the emergence of ISIS, you have this, uh, I love the phrase, the bipolar jihadosphere, <laughs> uh, where you have Al-Qaeda and ISIS who are both there. Where do the Tunisians tend to go and why? So most of the Tunisians, interestingly, have ended up joining up with ISIS, even though Ansar al-Shriya was Al-Qaeda. And I know that this sounds all kind of weird and doesn't make sense, but I think the important thing to remember is, um, you know, this enmity between ISIS and Al-Qaeda that's been going on pretty much since like 2013-14 wasn't the same as it was previously. Of course, there were ideological differences between bin Bin Laden and Zarqawi going back to the late 1990s, but they didn't like act on this in the same way, in part because neither organization was strong enough. They're just trying to survive and do what they're attempting to do um, in those early years as both groups and movements were building themselves. Um, and the thing to remember, too, is that uh, when Abu Ayyad was in Afghanistan in the late uh, 90s, he actually met Zarqawi. Um, and you have to remember, too, when Zarqawi was involved in Iraq, even if Al-Qaeda was disappointed by what he was doing, they still were promoting him and they were still part of Al-Qaeda. So they're providing uh, you know, financing as well as being connected to these different networks to get people to go there and help join the fight. And then if you look in the development of the Syrian war, Ansar al-Shari was supporting Jabhat al-Nusra, which was al-Qaeda's branch in Syria, um, which ISIS essentially helped implement and put from Iraq into Syria in the first place. Um, And then when ISIS officially said in April 2013 that they're going into Syria, um, which led to sort of this split between the two groups, um, uh, for whatever reason, Abu Ayyad didn't want to take sides at the at that time so he was supporting both what Jabhat al-Nusra was doing and ISIS likely because of his old connections to um, Zarqawi even if Zarqawi was dead by then but even the fact that there were a number of Tunisians within ISIS too so there were a lot of Hmm. just uh, personal connections as well Um, and for Abu Ayyad uh, he felt that it was better to try and keep ISIS within the fold than to try and kick them out because that could create even larger problems but by the time he sort of came to the realization that ISIS was fully against Al-Qaeda and even calling Abu Ayyad a Jew of Jihad, um, you know, an interesting epithet that ISIS would put, portray it, a number of um, Al-Qaeda-like uh, leaders and figures, including Ayman al-Zawahri, um, that uh, many Tunisians had already joined up with ISIS. Um, and there were also members of Ansar al-Sharia that were leaders um, that were pro-ISIS, so they helped recruit and build up that capacity as well. Um, so uh, even if you know they had this base that was created through the framework of Al-Qaeda, um, it ended up uh, providing the most benefit to ISIS in the <laughs> end frame. Um, and now we've seen, you know, with the fact that there were a number of Tunisians with ISIS in Syria as well as Libya, and then the attacks that happened within Tunisia in 2015 and 16, um, it's it's become uh, the the biggest group that these guys join nowadays. 
Well, great. Thanks. We've been speaking with Aaron Zellin uh, about his new book, Your Sons Are at Your Service, Tunisia's Missionaries of Jihad from Columbia University Press. Uh, Aaron, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me.